Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure to welcome Shane Turcott to the podcast. Welcome, Shane. Hey, I'm excited to be here. So Shane, what we're here to talk about today is decoding mechanical failures, the, ta- the title of your book that you recently shared with me. But before we dive into decoding mechanical failures, you're a principal metallurgist from Steel Image and heavily involved in a lot of professional societies. Although super brief, what else can you tell us about yourself, steel image, your book, that sort of thing? Okay, so I am a metallurgical engineer. Uh, I've worked uh, many places, everything from uh, my first job was at a steel mill. I worked at a a failure analysis lab specializing in failure analysis, obviously. Um, I worked at a turbine company and, and for all these, I did failure analysis. And in 2009, I started steel image and we, as you might expect, specialize in failure analysis. Very specifically, we, we specialize in supporting reliability efforts. We do a lot of work in the refining industry, in the mining, in the energy, uh, and heavy industry, such as you know automotive uh, and manufacturing. All right, excellent. What's interesting, and you know, I can't remember if it was you know what we were talking previously, but not a lot of engineers get to understand mechanical failures, failure analysis, fractography, those types of things, but yet it's critical to reliability. So that's what I really want to talk about today is how do we decode some of these failures and better understand how metallurgical failures are displayed, how they're manifested, how can we read that, read those signs? Okay. So, uh, oh, go ahead. So with that being said, what is fractography? So fractography is the science of examining fracture surfaces. When, when a part or a metal cracks, how that crack grows through the metal leaves behind very distinctive features. And so uh, when a part breaks, if you, can, if you can learn to examine those crack features, you can get a lot of information about how and why the part failed. And, and, and that's what fractography is. Fractography is a science uh, that's been developed in the metallurgical community. Um, and from there, if you can examine the part, you get a lot of information as to how and why the part failed, where the crack starts from, uh, the nature of loading responsible to, for failure, um, you can start to get clues whether there's any material or manufacturing defects that might have contributed to failure. That in turn gives information useful to understanding how and why the part failed. And that in turn is useful to an RCA and trying to understand the root cause of failure. All right. Excellent. Now, one of the questions I'm going to ask, and this is going to see, seem kind of silly, is why do we need to study the failed component? I get told so many times, oh, we don't need the components. We don't need to save those. We'll just use a five Y or some other tool, and it'll tell us what the problem is. <laughs> why, why do we need to study these things? Okay. Well, uh, I mean, I, this, my, my answer is going to be obvious as well then. Um, to, to solve a problem, you really have to understand it. For a doctor to uh, treat a patient, they have to first of all diagnose what's wrong with the patient. And there's no greater source of information for that doctor than, than the patient is themselves. And it, it's the same, same for uh, equipment failures. When, when a part fails, that failed piece of equipment has the most amount of information as to, as to why it failed. Um, and if we don't analyze it, 
we're only going to be guessing as to how the part failed. All right. I like that. We're only going to be guessing. We'll not know for certain what the cause was. So how should we go about studying these failed components? Do we need just a magnifying glass? Can we look at it with our eyes? You know, how do we go about studying these things? What's the process behind that? Okay. So there's, there's really two stages uh, of this. Number one is, and I, 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 I mean, I'm not, I'm not a reliability engineer, but I'm, I'm convinced that every time a part does fail, is that you're going to send your, your most knowledgeable people in and they're going to examine the scene. They're going to look at the part, look everywhere, get as much information as they can from that visual examination. Um, and and I, I mean, we're here to talk about fractography. And I think that there's a gap in that stage. And that stage in that gap is that we could be looking more at the actual crack surface, the actual, you know, the fracture surface that occurred. And after a decent triage, you may decide to go to stage number two, which is sending to a laboratory. And a laboratory will use a lot of lab-based equipment to provide even more physical evidence as to how and why a part failed. All right. So when we do that first part, where we're looking at internally, that sort of thing, is there anything we need to use? You mentioned the lab has specialized equipment, but you know, magnifying glass, does that work? Just our bare eyes? Do we need anything from our side of the house to really start looking at these failures? So, so yes and no. Um, so I, I want to be clear that, you know, a, a laboratory staffed with trained experts is always going to be able to provide the most amount of information possible. And that, and that's what I do at steel image is that, you know, if, if you give us a sample, we would use uh, a lot of equipment and explain and provide the most amount of information possible as to why that part failed. However, the reality is, is that there's a lot of RCAs that are being completed with, without having access to that laboratory support. Um, and so this doesn't have to be an all or nothing. And the reason I wrote the book is because if, if all you have is visual examination, you can still get a lot of information from, from with a bit of training from studying those failed parts. So, uh, James, I, so I'm not saying that you can, you can, you know, you'll, you'll ever get as much information as a laboratory will. But you can get an awful lot of information if it's a mechanical failure that is going to explain to you how it failed. And that's going to be very useful to, for the remainder of your RCA. And in many cases, be enough to drive you towards the root cause of failure. All right. Perfect. Now, when I went through your book, you listed out three, three main types of failures that, of mechanical failures that we would typically see with metallurgic components. What are those three? So they are ductile overload. And, and that is, you know, when a, when a ductile material is accidentally loaded too much, it'll fail. There's brittle. And that's kind of like analogous to glass shattering. And then last is fatigue. And fatigue is, is, is cracking that occurs over many loading cycles, thousands, maybe even millions where a crack will, will initiate, grow across, and then cause catastrophic failure. Okay. So let's start with the first one, ductile failure. What is it and how do we identify it? Okay. So, so most of the metals that we use in structures and equipment, they, they tend to be steels that are ductile. Uh, and, and we want that because they absorb energy. Now, we never want steel to fail, but if it does, we want it to fail in a ductile manner. So if I'm in a car and I crash, I, I want it to absorb as much energy as possible. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's a safety issue. Now, how you recognize it um, let's just say it's a lot easier to show pictures of that. And, and, and I, I would hate, you know, I'll do my very best to describe it, but, but, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words and we're, we don't, we don't have that right now, but one of the best clues that it's ductile overload is, is deformation is that if you have a permanent shape change in the vicinity of failure and by deformation, I mean like um, stretching, elongation, necking, 
bending, twisting, buckling, that's a really good sign that that part has had loading well beyond the useful strength of the part. The other two features that can be used to identify it as ductile overload is that the first one is that it forms a very dull and fibrous uh, uh, fracture appearance, um, at which, which contrasts very well. If you were to put the three, the three failure modes, ductile, brittle, and fatigue, is your ductile would be the darkest gray in most fibers. And the last thing is if you have enough tension element in your failure, you'll form 45 degrees shear lips all around your fracture surface. All right, excellent. So some basic things. And I know in the book, there are some fantastic images, full color images that show you examples of all these things you mentioned. Now, how is a brittle fracture different from a ductile, ductile fracture? Aren't they both overloads of some sort? Yes, they're both overload, but they occur for very different reasons. Now, I've, I've already mentioned that um, the steels that we use in structures and equipment, we, we tend to choose ductile materials. So if if a steel fails in a brittle manner, something very wrong has occurred. And, and it fails for a very different reason than if you have a ductile overload. And so it's very important in any RCA that you're able to diagnose and identify that it's brittle, which is done by examining the fracture. And the second thing is once you diagnose it as, as brittle, is you have to have a very clean and systematic approach to identify what are the factors that cause that otherwise ductile material to fail in a brittle manner. And it's one of the things that I'm really proud of in this book is the chapter on brittle fracture. It teaches you how to not only diagnose something as, as brittle fracture, but I think it has one of the cleanest, clearest uh, lists that once you do diagnose it as brittle, here are the factors that you need to, con to consider in your, in your RCA investigation. All right. So for a brittle fracture to occur, you mentioned there was some outside influences or something that occurred. Would that include temperature? Because when I think of brittle, you know, everything gets brittle when, it's get when it gets cold out. Would that be an example of environmental contributing factor? Yeah. So there's three, there's three, there's, sorry, there's two primary categories. Category number one is that you have an embrittlement phenomenon. Is that in your manufacturer or in your service, something has made your otherwise ductile steel and is permanently turned it brittle. And we talk about ways to identify if it's that. And then the other thing is that, yeah, you can take a ductile steel and bring it to a cold enough temperature and it can become brittle. And the, we call them, we call them uh, circumstantial uh, factors that if you have a sharp notch, if you have cold temperature, and if you impact it very quickly, you can transition a ductile material into a brittle state. Okay. So there's environmental conditions and then there's something that change the properties of that steel, making it from, or changing it from ductile to brittle, main two different categories, if you will. That's correct. All right, perfect. Now, the last one you mentioned was fatigue failure. What is that and how do we identify that versus these other two? So fatigue of all the different, of all the, the failure modes actually provides the most amount of information as to, as to how and why it failed. Um, so fatigue, as I've already mentioned, it occurs from cyclic loading or repetitive loading. This is your thousands of loading cycles, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. And the crack initiates and grows across. And how you can identify it are, are, are five main features. So first of all, you're going to have that, you know, a very clearly defined initiation, crack progression, and then the final ligament to fail, which we call the final failure. You could have crack arrest marks, sometimes called beach marks. You can have ratchet marks that radiate from the initiation site, it tend to be smoother. Um, now all these things, if with a little bit of training can not only help you identify that, yes, it failed by fatigue, but can give you a lot of clues as to what 
where that loading source came from. F fatigue only occurs of steel, only occurs if you exceed the fatigue limit. So no, no shaft, no part that is expected to experience cyclic loading should ever be above that fatigue limit. Once you identify as fatigue, your objective in an RCA will then become, well, well, was the loading too high or is the material too weak? And there's a lot of clues on that fracture surface that'll tell you the nature of the, of the loading that you can then, then assess whether, what, what the source of your problem was. All right, so in a fatigue failure, then we're really looking at two things. Was that piece of equipment subjected to higher than normal stress levels or was the material not as strong as it should have been? That's correct. Okay, perfect. Now, as we start to analyze these failures, do we need any special equipment to analyze these? Obviously labs are gonna have some very specialized equipment, but if I think of a typical reliability engineer or a maintenance group, is there some basic things they can grab like, uh, like a microscope they can plug into their laptops, stuff like that, that would give them input to these? So, so yes, I mean, you know, we've already, we've already chatted about it. You know, no, no uh, a laboratory will always provide the, you know, the most amount of information possible from a failed part. Um, but, but again, I, I think that there's still a lot that can be, you know, that can be uh, learned from in the field or, or close to the field. Um, so, so just using your eyes to examine is the prime is the primary step. It is the most important step of any failure analysis, you know, where, whether it's RCA, it's in a lab or anything like that. Um, and then, yeah, there, there are some, some very affordable tools that can actually aid with it. Um, a stereo microscope, which gives you a magnification of, uh, of, of five to 30 times just enough just to help the eye pick out things you might not otherwise is very useful. If, if you have a magnifying glass, it helps. All those things just to increase what you can see visually is very helpful. And specifically, you know, if, if, you, if you can identify where a crack starts from and, and think of the importance of that, where a crack starts from, does it start, start at a sharp corner? Does it start at a flaw? Does it start at a weld? You're always going to want to examine as carefully as you can that initiation site. So whether if only you have is your eyes, it's fine. But if you can if you can do anything to increase the magnification while looking at that initiation site, you'll probably pick up more information that might be useful. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook, A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing www.iridicio.com. Now, one question that I have is how important is preservation of the failed part? And what I mean by that is oftentimes they'll go to maintenance organizations and they'll have what they call a breakdown analysis shelf or something of that nature. And there are failed components all over it. Often it's, you know, in the maintenance shop. So, you know, they're getting covered in grinding dust, whatever else is floating around in there. Um, you know, Potentially they sit there for a while in a humid environment and corrosion occurs. How important is preserving and protecting apart from those types of factors? It's very important. I mean, I think already, you know, reliability engineers have a tough job, which is they have to make big decisions with whatever information they can get. So when you are just, just, through, just through storage, losing the opportunity of some of the information you could be getting, I mean, you're, you're just, again, making your own job harder. Um, there are some places that have a culture of repair and throw away. And I mean, the first step would be, of course, to keep it. And then the second step would be is keep it in a very preserved area. I mean, we, we've been involved in failures where people put it out in the yard and it's been exposed to rain. 
um, which of course corrosion is the enemy uh, of failure analysis and fractography. But again, you're diminishing you're diminishing what can be what can be you know uh, obtained from examining that part itself. So the my advice to anyone is create a culture of keeping, and and be smart in how you keep that part because you want to whether it's it's immediate or it's later on you want to have the opportunity to get as much information from it as possible. All right, perfect. Now, what I always advise all of, you know, the people I work with is when something breaks down, make sure you got Ziploc bags, make sure you got you know, <laughs> yeah. oil sample containers, even basic things like that. So you can get a sample of the oil. You can put the failed part in a Ziploc bag and have a Sharpie to mark it. Basic things like that. Great advice. I mean, even if you don't use it right away, just having, having that in the bag will give you an opportunity later on if you want to further investigate. Perfect. So I'm not too far off the mark there. Not at all. Now, are there any other failure modes that we need to consider aside from the three? And can we recognize in the same way, these in the same way as these other mechanical failure modes? So there are, I would say there are four different families of failure modes. There's mechanical, and we talked about that, ductile, brittle, fatigue. There are wear issues. There are corrosion issues. And then if you're, if you're looking at things that have high temperature, like boilers or furnaces, there's an entire category there of high temperature. So some of these do require more complex equipment. I mean, anything corrosion-based, you're going to have to be able to analyze the actual corrosion product itself. I, I think people can understand that. Um, and, and for that, I mean, mechanical failures provide, I would say, the most amount of information. You get the most amount of information from it just from visual examination. Um, it's the easiest to learn. And if, for anyone that's you know, starting in this, I think it's the first place they should learn. All right, perfect. Now, what do you think makes the biggest difference in being successful with decoding these types of mechanical failures? After the proper training, uh, I would say that it would be patience, thoroughness, and avoiding tunnel vision. Oh, wait, you said one. Okay, so <laughs> I, I, I would say the first thing is learn how to count. Um, but let me, let, me, let me amalgamate all three of those into one, is that you, know, you should never rush fractography. You should never rush examining a failed part. Um, it, when we, when we get a part in, if, if we're, if we're not hundred percent sure, we, we take a day or two, we sleep on it, we come back at it and you want to make sure that you examine, not just the failed area, everything on it, do not become tunnel vision, um, on some of the most obvious, uh, obvious concerns and take your time. You know, if the crack starts in an area that you don't expect, you shouldn't, it shouldn't be highly loaded. Um, if you're not sure about something, just, just look at it, sleep on it, think about it, call up the drawings and just go back and forth. Uh, and until you're, until you're comfortable. All right. Perfect. Now I recently, right before actually we started talking about this topic, had a reliability engineer where they had quite a few failures of bolts and then a coupling. Okay. This person has never been exposed to any type to understanding fractography, reading mechanical failures, all of those things. So why do you think fractography isn't really included in the curriculum or skill development within a lot of reliability engineers? So you got to admit it's a bit strange that we are training reliability engineers to, you know, identify, to investigate, identify how something failed, but we're not including the skill set of actually looking at the failed part or specifically the fracture surface. I mean, clearly that's a, it's a, it's a large gap that exists in there. It's like saying you can investigate a plane crash, but you can't, you can't investigate, you can't actually include the, the black box in your investigation. You're just missing a huge amount of information recorded about that failure. And so I think that's a really good question to ask organizations like SMRP who train and certify reliability engineers, why, why that gap is there. Now, 
I'm going to guess that the gap is there because before there was no resources. Um, to my knowledge, Decoding Mechanical Failures is the very first book that thoroughly introduces how to examine failed parts. I, I know I wish I had had such a book, um, you know, 15, 15 years ago when I was just starting my career. Um, I think it's the first book that clearly lists how to identify it as, you know, as that failure mode, uses pictures, repetitive pictures to illustrate what that looks like, explains what that means after you've diagnosed it as that failure mode, uh, and then go through case studies to kind of kind of cut your teeth. I, I mean, James, you've read it. What, what do you think? Have you, have you ever found anything like it before? Absolutely not. That's, you know, the images in there are so clear, their color, they're spelled out very, very nicely. So you can see like you're talking about with the, with how, for example, if we look at uh, ductile failure, how even putting a piece of metal through a shear, how it transform and deforms that metal and things to look at. How, you mentioned the fibers that you see, all those different things are in there and it makes it easy for a non-mechanical person being an electrical guy um, to understand. So I have yet to see anything like this. And immediately after me and you talked the first time, I recommended your book to that reliability engineer because this isn't the first time they've had these types of problems and they're just guessing using five whys for lack of a better, a better approach. Um, and, and, I, and I'm hoping to change that. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, like I, I've, I've, I include an idea in the book that if you were just to find a bolt and pick it off the ground and you were then tasked with identifying how it failed, you, you'd be up, you, you know, it'd be really tough. I mean, it could have failed from ductile overload. It could have failed from, a, you know, from an embrittlement issue. It could have failed from fatigue because it wasn't installed correctly or, or the loading on it was too much. It could have been a, a complex corrosion mechanism. And, and I think that a lot of reliability engineers are in that situation where they, something fails and they have to guess what that failure mode is, why it first failed. And if they don't guess right, the rest of their RCA is going to be, is going to, is going to be wrong or maybe not solve the problem. And so... James, I think, you're, I think you know, maybe you can testify. It doesn't take that much training to start picking out really useful information that can, can significantly improve an RCA. No, I don't think it does. With, armed with that book, and I convinced a few people now to go pick up a copy, um, they can be able to understand these things. And then, yeah, if they think it's this and they're going down a path, but they need confirmation, well, then they can send it to a failure analysis lab. But at least they have an idea of what has occurred they have a general direction to go down instead of what i've seen a lot of organizations they'll do an failure mode effect analysis for all the different failure modes that they think could have contributed to, to, to this do a risk priority number and then they'll tackle the top 10 percent we're addressing and, some of the issues but does that mean we hit the right one yeah it's true and 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 you know if you can just quickly pick out i i mean not every time right there's going to be some times that you're not going to be entirely sure and that's fine but I still think it's very reasonable that we include triage skills that they can look at it. And, and if, if even six or seven times out of 10, they can see, ah, my bolt filled by fatigue. And because I'm familiar with fatigue, I can tell very quickly if it, if it failed because it wasn't installed tightly or had it maintained its preload, or if it failed because it was grossly overloaded or the, or the bolt was too weak, AKA wrong, wrong bolt type. Um, there's tons of opportunity there in, in, in only a little bit of training to significantly improve uh, the quality of RCAs being completed. So with that being said, the book Decoding Mechanical Failures is a great reference. I've learned a ton from it. It is now going, I'm actually teaching an RCA class next week, and I will be using that as an example of what they need to go learn elsewhere. But aside from that book, 
Where, how do people begin to learn more about fractography, developing these skills under the guidance of someone who knows what they're doing? So I, I think that is, that is the problem is that, I mean, again, I, I've written this book because I think there's a, there's a big gap in there. Um, now we, we have put together a course. So we, we spent a lot of time brainstorming about what would be the very best way to teach or for someone to learn how to do fractography. And no matter what you do, at some point, you're going to come back to the same answer, which is people need to hold, examine, and learn by failed parts. They need to learn using failed parts. And so we put together a course that we inundate those who come. We just inundate them with, with tons of failures. They probably see more failures in the course than they might see in a, in a five, 10 years of their career. Uh, and you, get, you actually get very good at looking at broken parts uh, and doing mock failure analyses. Um, because of COVID though, yeah, I, hopefully people can appreciate we can't, we can't run that right now, but something to keep on the radar when, when it is safe to hold it again, uh, we're really looking forward to bringing that back. All right, perfect. That looks like an exciting course. There's tons of information in it. Um, you know, some of the examples you're using in the book, if those are only a sample of what you have in the course, you know, it looks to be an amazing course. Um, because like you said, it's hands-on, it's holding the parts, looking at them, understanding it, tracing it back, using that uh, deductive reasoning to sort out what actually happened or what did not happen. That, that's the idea. Perfect. Now, is there anything else aside from taking the class, picking up the book that may help them get started down this journey? At, at this moment, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think that the industry is going to be hungry for that, you know, once people start uh, recognizing it. So, so we're working really hard to create more resources. And I'm hoping if you ask me that question a year or two from now, I'll have a, a much longer list. All right, perfect. Yeah, well, I think it is a great start. Like I said, the book is probably one of the better books that I have read in a long time. It's practical. It's not just theory. It's here's exactly what to look for. Here's some case studies. Here's some differences and why it is, it is a fantastic book. So first off, thank you for providing that great resource to the larger community. And then second, for coming on today and talking to us about it. Thank, thanks, James. I really appreciate the kind words and I, I really appreciate having this discussion. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.